to the flight, takes through the first field. Brown hair goes under the stock fence, Harris Hawk goes over. We get down into the second field, she's gaining on it, she's nearly setting her feet, she's getting there. Brown hair goes under the fence, she goes over the top. And as we get into the third field, I go, this could go to the river, and that might end up having to get down there. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, and the next episode in our UK Falconry series. This should be our fifth episode of the series now, and I hope you all are enjoying it so far. But I have to mention the two guys that are responsible for making this series happen, being Neil Davies from Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. Neil's put together a really good publication with Pursuit Magazine, and I highly recommend you go to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and check it out if you haven't already. There's always lots of great new content in each issue, and Neil's doing a good job in helping to promote the art of falconry around the world. So I highly recommend that you go and subscribe if you haven't already. And of course, the other guy that I have to mention is Simon Tires, who's also the author of The Specialist Falcon. This book is a great recounting of Simon's personal approach to lowland game hawking. And even though that a lot of it is centered or written from the perspective of flying long wings in Britain, there's a lot of great relevant information in general, especially with flying long wings and using a lot of modern technologies such as drones and a lot of other things that are pertinent towards hawking in today's world. So if you haven't checked it out yet or haven't gotten your copy, head to thespecialistfalcon.com and order yours. I highly recommend it. And you can also get signed copies as well. So as I said before, head to thespecialistfalcon.com and get your copy if you have it. And this episode gives us a little different perspective from the UK than what we've heard so far, being from Scotsman Kevin Robertson. Kevin's also a big supporter of the podcast, which is much appreciated, but it was good to get a chance to sit down with him over the weekend, get to know him some, and hear how falconry is in Scotland. So without further ado, I give you all Kevin Robertson. Here we go. Kevin, man, it's been good getting to know you some, and you guys are definitely a different breed here, but it's been cool. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, (laughs) different breeds, definitely right. Um, Yeah, I think different things are a bit different when you come to the UK. It's a different style, different people, and the accents definitely don't help. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been fun, though. I really appreciate you guys' hospitality and everything's been been pretty fun so far been seeing a a lot of neat stuff and what's the uh coolest thing that you think you've you've seen so far um the thing is we're coming to a thing like this um you know the roll crows flying watching the falcons on the roll crows and doing the tailwire racing is you know something that i've seen already but for me i think silky dogs you know it's something that i don't really run and it's not a thing that's really done much in the uk is just watching you know running dogs um there's obviously a few boys over in the states that like to run dogs and fly fly jer falcons um over them um on jackrabbits and things um but yeah no seeing seeing them but it is nice to watch the falcons um some nice flying um and you know it's obviously something that i do 
myself, so I do it quite a lot, flying four falcons um, to the row crows, and uh, it definitely takes time and patience, and um, no, I, I really do enjoy it. So it's um, nice to see the, as I would say, the professionals doing it. Um, <laughs> I do it, but I'm definitely not 100% good as some of these boys that are doing it. Yeah. I don't think very many people, if anyone right now that I'm aware of in the U.S., flies any birds with the row crows or anything like that. So I guess since you use one for the people listening, kind of describe, I mean, it's, it's one of those things you kind of need to see to really, yeah, you, you do. Know, but, I, mean, I mean, the way I kind of, um, describe it to people that have never seen it. Um, I always say, think RC plane. So a remote controlled plane, obviously smaller, but looks like a bird. So you do have different versions. So you do have the crow, which is a row crow. You have a row duck, row pheasant. So it's all, they're all painted to look like the prey that you want your bird to catch. Um, and the main aim is obviously to teach a falcon one to gain height and two to chase after that prey. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's been rewarded. It, it obviously thinks it's you know it is real prey. At the end of the day, so it's going up. It's doing its thing. You know, I fly a little uh, Tearsel Peregrine, one of the birds that I fly on it. Um, flies at one pound three and a half ounces and he's up over a thousand foot every time to that and stoops down 140, 150 miles per hour um, and takes it um, so it is nice it's nice to watch but you know get it's and it's a great fitness aid as well you know your use boys will use drones and things to get your birds up there and gain, teach them to gain height and gain f- fitness um, we just it's um, Nick Fox is definitely done something there with these row preys and um made it a great training aid for birds and something that's practical but also very fun i know we were talking about it earlier but i I think the thing that people are going to be interested to hear about the most kind of like i was interested to hear about is sometimes it can be difficult to transition birds from the drone to live prey whatever the case is, pigeons or ducks or, or whatever, getting them like once they get you kind of used to the drone, sometimes they can become a little too wed to it. And sometimes there's issues trying to transition them to look down and, you know, do the whole you know, the, the stoop and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what kind of issues, if any, have you had transitioning from something like the row crow as opposed to like, you know, the drone, I mean, have you really had much in the ways of issues transitioning to to live game? None at all, because to the end of the day, what they are are chasing. So I'm taking these birds, flying them on a row crow, and then transitioning to actual crows. Um, So they already think they are taking crows. Obviously, just flies a little bit different. Uh, And whether you're doing off the fist pursuit or waiting on above and coming down, which is not... It's not, I I do fly certain birds that way. I fly the bigger uh, 7 8 jar off the fist at crows in pursuit style, but I think it's so much easier because they already do think it is a prey uh, and they are used to then taking it. So that transition is made so much easier. Whereas, as you said, you're going up to a drone. uh, If they become wed to that lure and they are always looking up all the time, um, once you take that drone away and the bird goes up, it's like, what am I actually meant to do? There's no mm. lure, lure here for me. Mm. Um, 
so it is different and I think also it's different as well you know I mean we don't use baggy pigeons or anything here it's not you know it's you're not allowed to do it whereas you can in the states you can always reward that bird with something mm-hmm. so even if you're out and you have not put any head of game up for your bird if you've got one in the bag then it's 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 easy it's easier um whereas here we obviously we just can't do that but i definitely think that going from chasing a robotic prey to then actually taking the prey is an easy transition also i would have said it's very similar to if you're training a young hawk harris red tail goshawk and you're wanting it to take rabbit or hare and you're pulling a dummy bunny it's a, it's a similar transition it knows if it's running after that prey and it's catching it it gets rewarded so when it sees one actually going it's i'm having that um so it does make it a very easy for me for me a very easy transition i don't know about other people but i would have thought they are very much in similar circumstances myself well how many birds have you trained with them so far four four so i'm flying four falcon four falcons to um two uh tearsal peregrines um a tribrid, a female tribrid, so she's a Jer Perry Saker and a seven eighths Jer Saker, um, all going to it um, very well. Um, tribrid was the first bird I tried on it. Um, she was my, my, my first falcon I tried, and um, she took it very well. Uh, the transition, even going from lure to rope prey, was quite easy, um, and she gives it her all. And I've never known a bird to hit it harder than her. Um, seven eighths jail. Um, she's more a pursuit style. Um, as I said, for a crow, she's off the fish. So with this, she's off the fish. She doesn't gain great height. But for me, the row crow for her is more about fitness than anything. Just get those wings pumping, get her chasing it. Um, and the fitness soon comes into her. Two tear souls. It's a bit of fun. Um, when I first started flying the first tier so on the, the row crow, um, he was only flying at one pound three and a half ounces and people had said to me, oh, that might be a, too small a bird for the row prey. Um, but no, definitely he's, as I said, you know, he, he's up there over a thousand foot every time and, and really doing the business. Um, the second one switched on in the end. I would have said that's the hardest bird I ever got, I ever had to to take the row, the row crow, um, the reason being he came to me at nine months old, um, he was fully untouched, um, six months in a hack pen, and with that he was he was fit, um, he knew how to fly, but he wanted to go around in circles and he wanted to only go twenty five foot high. We're spending these six months in a hack pen, so my first job with him was to get him man down, get him trained, get him flying and then transition to that row crow, which was a bit harder for him because you you would eat off the row crow fine. Um, You put on the ground, eat it, give it a little flight, eat it. But if you're really wanting him to go for it, he would go round and do his own thing and fly round in circles like he was in a hack pen while you're trying to bring this row crow and in front of him and switch him onto it like the boys were doing today. You know, the falcon goes away, 
you then need to try and get the Ocrow in front of them, you switch them back on, you want to take it. Um, and that proved a bit harder with him, the hardest bird, but that's all down to the breeding and spending too much time in the hack pen, whereas I do like to get my falcons at nine, ten weeks old, parent reared, and they just switch on very, very quickly. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I like I said, it's it's kind of a foreign thing to me. I mean, I've I've drawn birds before and you know, like I said, it's it's it seems like it's a different process, but something that I've noticed with Falcons and, and something that I've also been told from other experienced guys that have way more long wing experience than me. But they they're smart, you know, so they kind of have a tendency to know like, you know, I know you guys don't get to serve or you know deal with any kind of you know um live game or, or reward type system uh here but if you serve a pigeon versus like you know like offer up a, a live like they know the difference and they can kind of get to learn the difference pretty quick if you're not careful so you know, I just didn't know if you'd run into any issues with the fact that it knows like it, that it's, you know, between the sounds and the way that the wings don't move and stuff, whatever. I mean, if there's really any challenge as far as getting the bird to not be wed to a mechanical yeah. or a motorized, you know, type of thing like that versus something that's obviously live prey. No, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, falcons that I'm flying seem to be quite versatile in the way that they will do both. I think when you're going out and doing one or the other by what you're doing and what's going on round about, they know exactly what's happening. So if you're going out and you're flying on that Rocro, they know themselves, I'm going to the Rocro today. And as soon as they hear that engine, it just turns everything on. And you I mean you could have a you could have a falcon on a block with a hood on and you fire up that engine in the Rocro and they know what's happening right away, hood off, and that's it. They know what their job is. Mm -hmm. But if you're taking them out and I see you are slipping a falcon out the hood on pursuit and you're walking through a field for a good bit of time before you can find a slip and they're walking for that length on your fist with the hood on, they then know I'm going for crows rather than... And, and it just seems to work. Um, and when, when they first brought the first... Uh, role play out it had actually moving wings mm -hmm. so the Rabara um, it had moving wings to, s to simulate those wings moving they never when they made the version 2 and brought in these new ones they decided to make it a solid wing rather than movable parts and though the wings aren't moving the, the birds just seem to switch on just the same for, for either one that's weird I mean that's that's cool I mean that's actually really good. It makes it in a lot of ways then a lot more practical than drone because some of these birds, they can get so drone wed and they just won't have an interest sometimes in, in doing live, you know, a real game because they, they get so wed to the fact, well, well, no, I don't want to go. I mean, I, I, I want to wait for the thing up in the sky so I can get my, my instant reward. So I was just curious because like I said, it's, it's very intriguing. It's really neat to watch. You know, I mean, I wish it kind of had a little bit more battery time than like the 10 minutes or whatever. But I mean, in reality, most of your flights are going to be five, six minutes tops and in a lot of long wing situations anyway, in the right circumstances. But, yeah. Yeah, that that's it. I mean, the battery life isn't 
absolutely amazing on them. It does say that the battery life can be 10 minutes, but that's if you're not on the throttle all the time. If you've got a really fit Falcon and you're getting them fit, that's cut down to at least four minutes, three and a half, four minutes at a push. Um, so you are wanting to try and get things done a bit quicker. So if you've got that throttle on full all the time, keeping that Rokro away from them, you're dramatically cut down in your time that you're actually going to get that bird flying. So it does, but it works. It's 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 what they do. But my main aim with the Rokro is right at the start of flying them and you're getting them fit it's used as a fitness aid and a training aid and then it completely comes away for those falcons and then those falcons then go on to crows for the rest of the season unless i'm doing a demonstration for someday and they want to see what it's like flying a bird and i'll take one of them and though it's been on you know hunting and taking crows for a month or two months it can still go and do a day where this person wants to see how it's going. And I do, I help a lot of boys out as well that have little issues with their row crows and they can't really get them figured out because, I mean, they're not the simplest thing to fly. So you're then taking a bird off of that to show this is how it's done, let's sort yours out. And so we've we've done it that way. But yeah, definitely it's, it's a, great, a great thing. And, you know, it might be in the future they end up coming over to the US and use boys start using them and... <laughs> We'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm pretty sure uh, Nick Fox would uh, love them to start being sold over there. <laughs> Definitely p- push a bit of business his way. <laughs> well, I, I think out west especially, there there could potentially be definitely a market for them. But once again, you know, now that a lot of the, uh, the big long wing guys, especially out west, have kind of gotten used to the intermittent droning and, and things like that, it would more or less be more of a of a matter, I think, of just selling a lot of guys on the practicality of that versus the drone, which I do see the like I said, I, I do legitimately see uh, potential for a lot more uses for it than just a straight drone. But, you know, it, once again, it's going to be to each their own. Everybody's going to decide what they want to do or not do. So. Yeah, that is it. I mean, what, what you're seeing here today is, you know, they're simulating a hunt race and that's what they do they do hunt racing with it and it's you have to take that bird up to a certain height then bring it down below that height evade that bird for 30 seconds and land it in your 120 meter square whereas i'm taking that bird higher if you're training a young bird you're taking that bird higher and higher every time so each time you're training that new bird and you look at your gps and went right you've went higher than yesterday you reward it with the stoop so the bird then learns it's going down, I'm coming down, and the next day you go higher. Just to, you, mm-hmm. you, like you would do a drone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go higher and higher all the time till you're getting that bird to do what you want it to do. That you can take that row crow away, you slip your falcon, and the first thing it wants to do is ring up and gain that height. Sure. So then you're wanting to then go in and flush the game to put it up so it goes, the game's got up, I'm coming down. And it's just, you know, it's, just, it's the same, same way, the, the, you know, it's anything's getting done and when I mean, drones are fantastic the one thing i've never flew a falcon to i just went straight to rocros um and i would like to try it it's something a bit different it definitely would get a falcon fit and learn to ring up but i do enjoy this it's 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 fun you're in control the whole entire time whereas you put a drone up you stand back you watch the falcon ring up to it whereas 
you with this you need to be quite a good pilot especially if you've got a very good falcon to try you know you're, you you dive it down and then you want to try and keep it away from the falcon for a while simulate a hunt uh, and you soon learn to know what it's like to be the prey because you've got this falcon chasing you and it's completely different if you just start learning out and you're learning how to fly uh, the row crow you you know you're spending weeks just getting used to how it works how it how it goes different wind directions and what you can do with it and the first time you ever put a falcon on that it's a completely different story um and you're like oh this is maybe a wee bit harder than what i thought it, you know it's a completely different ball game when you've got a falcon chasing it um but it it, it works for me and i absolutely love it no that's like i said that's really cool i'd like to see more actual flights on it and I'm not really sure how much, I mean, maybe tomorrow I can see a few more, but yeah, I mean, it. I don't have any doubt that the first few times that I flew, that I would fly one, I would just crash and burn it all to hell, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, overall, like I said, it, I can definitely see where the potential would be as long as the bird doesn't get fixated on it and go off of the auditory cues of the motor, you know, starting up and, and, um, you know, kind of like what happens with a drone and, and stuff. I mean, but, you know, like I said, it, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I can definitely see it would have practical uses in a lot of ways. But, but yeah, no, so, I mean, kind of moving on a little bit then, like, so as far as, um, you know, just your history and stuff, what, um, you mentioned that your dad was, is it your dad that was that was a falconer also? Yeah, yeah. Um- Dad started the same time as me into falconry, uh, and the way that we got into it was, it'll be 19 years ago now, um, there was a local man that we knew of, and he was, he built a bird of prey centre. He wanted to, like, pass on his passion to other people, show them that it, uh, all about birds of prey and all about conservation and education. He was building the bird of prey centre at the time. His electrician let him down. With that, my dad was an electrician by trade. So he went up through a mutual friend, wired the centre up, and that's where it started. Now, they kind of do say, I love but you know, falconers are born, not made in a way, and you just need something to trigger it within you. And I was never, int- I mean, always been interested in animals, I've worked with animals my whole entire life. But when he went up there and wired up, that place for him. We kind of went up every weekend, helped out, started to learn, got the bug for falconry, and that was it. Every spare weekend, holiday, up, learning, being mentored by Brian, the gentleman who owned it, learning how to make equipment, how to do everything that we had to do. And after, I would have said, about a year, that was like, I was told by Brian, Right, you're ready to get your first bird, so then you go through the process of finding a bird, and that was it. It's just been from there, it snowballed. Um, unfortunately, Brian in 2006 was um, unfortunately passed away with esophageal cancer. Um, and in 2007, my dad decided he was cashing in his pension, buying the place off his wife, and that was it. So, we've moved, he's moved. This is the third, third place he's built. But the biggest and the best he's done. And though I've flown birds for this amount of time, I started working with him in 2019. 
started doing the flying demonstrations for him, flying birds for him, and it's just grown arms and legs, and every year it just gets bigger and better, and kind of that, you know, that's where it started. It was all through just a chance of him going in and doing this, and then it just snowballed, and, you know, now I'm lucky enough that I do get to fly birds for a living. It's my job. I basically get paid to do my hobby, what I've been doing for near on 19 years. And I wouldn't change it. It's, it's the best thing I've ever done. And it was always the case when, when Dad built that the new centre that we're in just now, he, he built that in 2013. And at that point, I kind of took a share in the business and I didn't, you know, one of those ones I didn't want, didn't know how it was going to do in a new location. So I kind of went, I'll come and work for you at some point, but I don't want to be a financial burden on you because we don't know how it's going to do. So I've worked in agriculture my whole entire life. So I continued doing that um, until 2019. I had a bit, bit of a uh, problem with some staff members, employed one, but one didn't like that, that happening. So then he decided... I'm going to have to look for somewhere at somebody else. And I'm like, I'm right here. Let, <laughs> let's see what we can do. And, and it's worked. It's great. Can I, I think having um, somebody fresh coming in, coming in can kind of see things in a different light and can go, well, let's try this. Let's do that. And it seems to work. And I mean, sometimes people tell me it's, it's not the best thing working with your family because, you know, if something goes wrong, but <laughs> yeah. that, we, we, no, we get on fine. Um, me and my dad have always done stuff together our whole entire lives, so it was it was kind of an easy one to, to kind of go and do. And yeah, I, I love it. It's just you get paid to do something that people be. Are, like I get people coming on a daily basis saying your job's absolutely fantastic. I'd love to do it, and I'm like, ah, yeah, it's great. It's my hobby, and I get paid to do it. It's even better. Yeah, no, I I can see where that would be very appealing, and most of the people that do the exhibition type stuff, really enjoy it. And, but yeah, I mean, there's obvious pitfalls to working with and for your family for sure, <laughs> because yeah, there's all kinds of rooms for, or all kinds of room for, you know, falling out and stuff. If things don't, don't work out. And then not only that, you're, you're out of a job plus a, you know, kind of a, <laughs> a little bit of a, of a tension relationship in, in your family. And you know, I can totally see that, but I'm glad that it's worked out for you. And I mean, how many birds do you guys have it right now? Yeah, we are probably just sitting about 41 birds just now. And you know, you're the thing is with it, you know, I do, I like both, I like both worlds. So you've got your display work that you're doing, which we do three displays a day and you work so hard through that tourist season because that's where you're making all your money. So that when you shut, we usually shut down over the winter. So it means we can relax and that's when we do our hunting. So we'll take people out hunting. We'll hunt our own birds. So you're getting the best of both worlds there where, you know, it's a thing It's a thing with falconry. It's very time consuming and people that get into it don't realise how much time you actually need to put into it. And though I've done it for so long, I've never had as much time to put into my birds as I have now because I get to fly them every single day. In the past, you know, it's not been ideal. You might only get out three days a week. And ideally, I do like to get out at least four or five days a week with my, my hawks when I'm flying them and hunting them. Uh, but in the summer months, when it's lighter 
to later at night. What I did is I had a summer falcon and that bird was probably the bird that I got to put the most time into until I started working for dad. And now it's just, yeah, you you get yourself through the tourist season flying <laughs> on average 25 birds a day for people on demonstrations. And then when it gets to September, October time, that's when you start to slow things down on the demonstration side. You start doing experience days and you come in and walk. I can come in some days and go, I'm just going to go out and, well, I'll go and hunt the Harrises or I'll go out and I'll go and hunt the Goshawk or, and then I get to go and spend hours in the field by myself doing what I really enjoy doing. And it's, it's, I would have thought it's, it's a very good thing as in mentally in your head, um, just to be out there. I mean, I've always been a guy that's grown up in the countryside. That's something I've always, always done. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't be one of these guys that had a ninety-five behind a desk and sat in an office all day. I've got to be out there and enjoying it. And even, even my kids as well. It's one thing that we do. We're a very outdoors family, so everything's revolved around going outside and. My two boys are very well into falconry now and they're doing... My oldest has his own birds and my younger son's coming into it now and he's only six and likes to come down and help out and fly birds. So it's a very family thing for me as well, so where you can all go out and do things and the boys come out hunting with me and they absolutely, they absolutely love it. Well, that's great. I mean, it's... <laughs> anytime I hear of falconers who actually have kids that that kind of give a crap about their falconry i'm always at least a little bit jealous because my son could care less i mean it's it's kind of the more of the norm i think if you grow up with it to whatever degree they're just not as enthralled or impressed by it because they're just desensitized to it so i mean it's cool that you've got you know uh, kids that are interested in it and really want to kind of be involved in it and i mean who knows maybe you can keep a keep the business, you know, a family business and, you know, you've already got your, your trainee and, and waiting and, and your kids and stuff. So, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's one thing. And it's one thing, I, I mean, it's, it's my passion. It's, it's my thing. Um, and it's something I would never push on them personally. It's if they want to do it and they want to help out, then it's there for them. And yeah, they do. They, they like it. You know, you've met my oldest son, Aiden here this weekend and, He's, he's cost me an arm and a leg this weekend with the stuff that he's wanted to, to buy, new lures and hoods and things for birds, but I'm not going to stop that in any way. If it's what he wants to do and what he, want, what he wants, then, yeah, definitely I'll I'll nurture that and with him, and if he wants to carry on and fly birds and that's what he wants to do, then definitely that's what, what, he, what he'll get. It's At the end of the day, these... Young kids are the future falconers. They're the future generation. So we've got to kind of nurture that and and keep it going. It's you know it is the oldest sport in the world, and we want to, we want to keep it going. And it's all about educating kids and uh, and teaching them how how great these birds are. A lot of kids, especially in the UK, I don't know what it's like in in the states. Is some of the kids couldn't even tell you what some of the birds are. Um, bird of prey wise most adults can't do yeah, that either. well I suppose but you know it's a thing that when I was in school I learned when growing up you know you knew your individual British bird species um, it was something that was taught to me anyway 
Um, but now, I don't think it, you know, a, a lot of kids know, they know certain birds, but definitely not. And especially the decline in some species of the UK as well, it's good to actually put that conservation message across by doing the displays like we do, to kind of teach what's happening to these individual species and how we can help them just so that they are basically there for future generations as well. Yeah, no, and, and there's always a lot of misconceptions around birds of prey in general, and especially in, in a lot of uh, rural communities and, and things like that. There's always misconceptions to a huge degree when it comes to your, your interactions with birds of prey and even you know, your household pets and things like that. And And yeah, I mean, anytime you can educate people in an entertaining way, especially when they're coming in through a, a tourist type environment and just want to scope it out or whatever. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's cool. I mean, how long does the tourist season last for you all? Our tourist season, I would have said does kick off in March and then it starts to grow arm and legs. And what you've got is you, you, when it starts in March, you're aiming for the school holidays. And then once you get into April and May, that's it. It's full blown right to, October, end of October, and then depending how things are going and visitor numbers in the location, then we will either keep it going till November, shut down December, open back up in February, and then that gives us a month to get birds ready again to start <laughs> to start all over. Um, it's you know, you're flying twenty five birds a day on demonstration. It does take a lot out of them, so you're constantly you've swapping birds over, keeping, having birds in moult when they're ready, ready to go, have them go into the flying team, take more out, put them down to moult. So it's a con constant vicious cycle basically of birds flying, birds not, and just constantly keeping them rotating to keep them going. And that's not even including the hunting birds once. I mean, I've got a holiday next month. Once that's over and done with, we're onto those four falcons and getting them going again for the season. How many people do you have? Yeah. How many people do you have employed to help keep track of, of all those birds? I have four full-time falconers and I have one full-time member of staff in the shop. And I have a team of between eight and 10 volunteers that all have their dedicated days to come in and help us out with them coming in. I mean, the volunteers are vital to what we do. There, you'll have vet students, you'll have people that are interested in falconry and want to learn a little bit more. So they come in, they help out, they learn, and it really helps us because it gives your falconers time to go and do the stuff that they need to do with the birds and all the bird work because without them, none of that would happen because we'd be busy doing everything else because... You know, we're not one of the biggest centres in the UK. We're far from it. There are bigger centres out there. But we are flying at least near on 80% of our birds. So it does take a lot. Um, so we are very, very grateful for everybody that does come in and give us a hand. And, and it just makes everything a bit easier on everybody. And they, they love coming in and then they're getting trained as well the whole time they're in. They are learning about birds of prey and learning how to do things and eventually they're moving on and they're flying their own flying birds and they're doing demonstrations for us as well, which takes the workload off everybody else. 
and it just it seems to work and it's and people do they love they come in and volunteer and they just say they're in for what a vet shouldn't it's in for two weeks they're doing a course they need to learn about birds of prey and after that once the course finishes I would have said at least 30 or 40 percent end up coming back and volunteering on their own time without having to do it as part of a course and as it, it, it's it, it works for us and I think we're probably one a lucky centre as well because I don't think a lot of places do get the same amount of people actually wanting to come and help them out. Some places do kind of struggle to get volunteers. You know, Falcon and Birds of Prey is a very niche market and not everybody's into it. So it takes something just for them to want to come and do that. Um, but yeah, as I said, it works for us and it's it wouldn't the place wouldn't run as smoothly and as it does without all those. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I was just curious because I figured you'd have to at least have a handful, you know, people working with you or for you. And but, I mean, as far as actual like falconry goes, though, and you're hunting, what is kind of the the typical what what's what's the typical hunt look like for you? I mean, I know it's going to probably vary a little bit depending on the species that you're choosing to fly on any given day, but what do you mainly hunt where you're at and exactly where are you or approximately where are you located in Scotland? So we are located right on the banks of Loch Lomond, um, just 25 minutes from Glasgow on the West Coast. And my my hunts are kind of, depending on what I'm hunting, are kind of two situations where I go. Now, I'm hunting either Harris Hawks, Hawkwise Harris Hawks, uh, or Goshawk. And depending on what I'm wanting, it kind of varies in what I'm wanting to do. So if I want to go out for pheasants, um, that's a very close location for us. So it's within a five-minute drive of the centre. We've got a 1,000 acres up there, and it has pheasant on it. If I'm flying Harris Hawks on those pheasants... It is a very wooded area, there's not a lot of open ground. It's not the best suited for the goshawk, though we do the goshawk on them. So what we do is we fly a cast of Harris Hawks from the trees, following on, flushing pheasant for them. Or half the time we don't even see the pheasant, you just hear the bells, pheasants after, they're away after the pheasant. Uh, and nine times out of ten... Hopefully they don't go across the river that's there, which has happened a few <laughs> times. And I said to you the, the other day, yeah, there's been scenarios and situations where even ducks have got up and the hawks have went, oh, we'll have them. And they're across the other side of the river. They're on something or they're soaking wet and can't make it back. And you have no alternative but to strip down and go through that river. <laughs> Yeah, well, either that or just don't hunt by the river. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they they make the, they they make that decision on their own. But yeah, another another scenario was um, rabbits. We 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 bought rabbits here with, with ferrets, so that's what we'll do, and we'll we'll take casts of Harris hawks down. Um, it's probably one of the the common ones that we do, and it's the more common one that customers want to go and do. So we'll take and what we usually do is we go down to the we go down to the borders for that and we'll go down onto some hill ground with lots of pheasant uh, lots of rabbits, sorry, and um we'll use the ferrets to, to bolt the rabbits and the cast of Harris Hawks will chase after the rabbits, depending on the day. Some of the slips can be really good. If you the thing is, what we find down there, if you've got a very calm 
day. There's not a lot of wind. You're more than likely to have the rabbits hole hop, so they'll come out one rab one hole, run along, straight in the other. So by the time your hawks left the fist, it's more or less near enough at the next burrow. The ideal situation is what you want is you want a gust of wind. So either you can have the Harris hawks waiting on above you and you'll flush the rabbits with ferrets and with that wind what they want to do is they want to run and they run directly down the hill or you'll have them on the fist and the same thing happens and that's what we like, I like nice long flights, good flights that you can watch uh, and some of the best flights that we have don't always end up with something in the bag but they're the more memorable ones that you like definitely in a first season with a bird you want to get as many kills as you can yeah, they're young, they're stupid as we've talked about and uh, you just want to get those kills under that bird and make that bird as best bird it can be as you do get move on through the years numbers don't necessarily play a part on it and I more focus on getting nice flights and setting, trying to set up nice flights you do get a lot of boys that will stand around a bunch of burrows and they'll, they'll be as close as the burrow, to the burrow as they can and you know, I like to stand, stand as far back as I can and get a nice long slip for those hawks uh, down onto those rabbits um, and it, it it's one of the more enjoyable ones pheasants are pheasants are good as well and, and the way that we'll do the do, do the goshawk on them is yeah one one guy will have the goshawk out on the fist and i don't work any dogs and in that woodland what we do is we send a couple of beaters in so send a couple of, like you would do, do on a pheasant shoot a couple of beaters into the woodland try and rustle up some pheasants and try and get some nice slips for the for the goshawk and it's nice to you know see the difference between the two styles of hunting so you've got your you know your harris hawks following on and your your goshawk um coming off the fist and taking in my deer and we've had a couple incidents um last season um first first day of the season male harris hawk getting him ready to go out and um get his hopefully bag a pheasant on the first day and uh got him all ready kitted him up put him on the the door of the the van and i was getting some things ready and heard the bell looked and he's off and about 100 100 120 yards down the field see this cock pheasant running <laughs> and I'm like, right, okay. You're eager. This could be this could be a quick hunt. And from that distance away, I could hear the thud as if it was right next to me. <laughs> so ran down, didn't know what I was expecting, and out comes little male Harris. Well, I say little male Harris, he flies at one pound ten. And uh, he comes out looking a bit disorientated, and I'm going, Oh, what's happened here? And I look on the ground and the deck feather with the telemetry has been ripped out and what's actually happened is he came down that hard and smacked that cock pheasant that the momentum carried him in through the hedge and into a stock fence and we hit the stock fence he lost the pheasant got him back up onto the glove and there was blood coming out of his nostrils mm. so panic station set in sure, and I'm yeah. like oh what's going on um and that was fine. He was like, head up to the van. We'll get you to the vet. But because the blood was coming out of his nose, um, he started to sneeze. And because he was sneezing, there was blood bubbles coming out of his eyes. So that really did set um, the fear in me. So straight in the box, driving him through the avian vet specialist. 
getting to the other side and going, oh, I don't know if this bird's going to be alive in this box or not. Fingers crossed he was, uh, got him into the vet and um, they x-rayed him, nothing broken, kept him in overnight and basically what it was, it was a burst blood vessel in the nose, he'd hit the pheasant that hard, burst a blood vessel and because your sinuses, mm-hmm. um, the blood coming out of his nose, it kind of um, made him sneeze and with the sneezing it caused the air to come up through his eyes and that was the, at the blood bubbles, um, so couple of weeks off and he was that was him back out and doing his thing and c- catching pheasants again but i think it is one of those ones you know you do count your blessings every time you are out with a hawk we all know it can go wrong especially in the uk when there's a lot of stock fences about that when you do have your bird on the fist at the end of the day and it's fully 100 percent healthy you count that as a good day whether you've got something in the bag or not oh yeah for sure yeah i mean that's the one of the oldest sayings is any any time you go home with a bird in a box, it's a good day. So yeah, I'm, and especially in that situation where you're expecting a, you know, the worst like an aneurysm or something like that. And yeah, I mean, for that to turn out well, yeah, you're lucky in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just one of these things, I think. But um, yeah, it definitely turned out to be one of the better cases. But there, I mean, there's people out there. You know, at the end of the day, you're. If you're hunting a bird, your bird's on the edge all the time. It's pushing and pushing itself and it's fully committed to the cause and things can go awry and things can go wrong and just, you know, it could be a bar, a bit of barbed wire sticking out of the ground that you don't know is there and it flies along and or in my case what happens quite a lot and what I need to watch for on some local permission is the wild peregrines coming in and I've had it in cases where just even training falcons on the okro, in one case I had, I looked up at one point and I went, why have I got two falcons chasing my okro? And I looked up and figured out it was a wild one. But my, the wild one wasn't behind chasing my falcon, the wild one was in front chasing the okro. <laughs> so then went, oh, I think I better need to do something about this. So started bringing the okro down before the wild falcon caught it. If it had caught it, I would have been away with it, ditched it down into the ground, and then, obviously, a little dog fighting came about it. But, yeah, you do, especially when you've got peregrines about um, and, and common buzzards here in the UK, it's something you need to watch when you're, when you're flying your birds and there are times where you've got to call that bird in just in case anything, go, anything does go wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm for sure, and... Yeah, I mean, there's weird situations like that. I mean, I've I've had birds before that have tussled with with other wild birds and stuff. You just got to get in there. I mean, I've seen red tails uh, tussle with great horns before, and and that always ends well. Yeah, who <laughs> fall though? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it yeah, you always run into those kind of situations. But well, I mean, as far as uh, I mean, you, you're a pretty regular listener of, of the podcast. And, I am, yes. yeah, and and so I mean. I just want to say thank you again for the support on that. But so, you know, that one of the questions we usually ask, though, is is a story about one of your either favorite birds, favorite hunting story. I mean, you've already told a few pretty cool stories, but I mean, is there one in particular that sticks out for you or, you know, a particular bird that that will always be kind of like numero uno, so to speak? In uh, your- I mean, it's kind of hard to try and narrow it down to one and you knew this I, question was coming yeah, it's your oh, fault yeah I di- yeah i did i did and it is hard to narrow it down to one um there are 
a few birds that are quite special to me and I always say I'm not really meant to I'm not allowed to have a favourite as such <laughs> but you do um, I would have thought I did my I would have said my most memorable flight was from a female Harris I had um, she was she flew to pound four and a half ounces and she loved brown hair uh, and with that you know she would the way I flew her, she would see them from distance where I wouldn't, and you just knew the way she was flying. She's seen a hair, and she was she would fly four, five, six hundred yards at a brown hair, knowing full well that I'm no use in bolt, and I cannot run there as quickly <laughs> as what she thinks to help out. <laughs> and with that, you know, a lot of time, and especially in her first year, she'd get on a brown hair, she'd get kicked off, but it never discouraged her in any way every time she seen one she was having it whether she had no chance of actually keeping hold of it or not and I would have said with her she was definitely something special um she was the first female Harris I'd flown I'd flown males before that but wanted something a bit bigger and I do I do like Harris Hawks I just think they're very versatile um and the more you do fly them, the better they get. And they're just an all-round great bird. And I think they're kind of quite underrated in some places. And what we were doing is she was following on through a woodland uh, one day. Farm track at the side of it. Woodland on the left-hand side. And I'm out on the road just walking along. We're heading along this track. Hear the bells. And out she comes from the woodland. As I look down... To my right down the field, I spy the brown hair and it gets up and starts running. So we are on the top of a hill with four fields below us down to a river. So the flight takes through the first field. Brown hair goes under the stock fence. Harris Hawk goes over. We get down into the second field. She's gaining on it. She's nearly setting her feet. She's getting there. Brown hair goes under the fence. She goes over the top, and as we get into the third field, and I go, this could go to the river, and I might end up having to get down there. <laughs> she sets her feet, ready to make her move, and it all happened really so quickly, but just as she was just ready to make contact with that brown hair, and we've, you know, we've all seen it, brown hair, launches itself up into the air, jumps basically over the top of her while doing a backflip, and then proceeds to run back up the hill. All credit to her. She turns round about and tries to make that distance up coming back up the hill, but we all know that you know there was only going to be one winner in that race <laughs> and it wasn't going to be the Harris Hawk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Like still some of my favorite flights that I've had as a Falconer as well have been with, with Jackrabbits, which is, you know, our equivalent to, you know, your hairs obviously. But but yeah, no, that's that's awesome, man. Well, I mean, like I said, it there I know you either love Harris's or you don't same thing kind of with goshawks you know you usually love them or you don't I mean it's the way it is with a lot of species but no it's cool it's cool seeing a you know another falconer from over here that uh that appreciates what a Harris hawk can do even though yeah that's it I mean I think <laughs> and I think I'm quite lucky and in, in, in such a way that I do have such a versatility of birds to pick and choose from for what I want to do hmm. uh and you know but and as I've always said, you know, if you get one bird, you put the time and the effort into it and it'll just get better and better and better. And working on the thing we're here in the UK is 
somebody will start off with a Harris Hawk because they're meant to be, you know, very easily trained and seen as a beginner's bird. And after flying at a season, not even getting it to its full potential, it's like, oh, I want another challenge. I'm going to get a goshawk next. And <laughs> that's when things go a little bit wrong. Um, but I like when I've got a bird, I've basically got it for life. It's there and it's it's there to work and it's doing its job. And these birds just keep getting better and better every year. And you're learning from them. They're learning from you. So it all ties in very, very, very well. And um, I do, honestly... There are, I mean, we're, we're going out, a lot of my friends all fly Harris Hawks and it's one bird that, you know, it kind of, I would say that unifies all us because it's one thing you can go out with your friends, you can all fly in a cast, whereas sometimes when you're, when you're flying different species, it's a very, very solo event, you're out on your own, depending on if you're at a meet and you're doing, you're slipping separately, but definitely it brings all, all us together and, um, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It's they're, they're just, I would have said, one of the best birds you can have in falconry, definitely. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's cool, too, whenever you have birds that can fly in a cast, too, because it also saves saves time, especially if you got a bunch of other birds to fly, too. But but no, that's great, man. Well, I mean, before we, we finish up, I mean, I've been asking this recently. I mean, is there any particular bit of knowledge pearl of wisdom or anything that you'd like to, to pass on i mean you've been doing this for a while too and um when i when i would have said that this would be probably more aimed at the uk audience than anything just because that's what i'm used to but you know there are th- you know falconry's kind of perceived in c- certain places as depending on people and the people that are doing it it's not perceived very well or looked at very well but you know what we want to do is try and encourage more people to come into the sport but also help them out in such a way and to try and teach them to do it the right way so i'm always for if somebody wants to get into falconry is to seek out somebody that's already doing it you know find a mentor they'll teach you and learn how to do things first before you get the bird in the uk some people seem to do is they get the bird first and then want to learn second uh and it just it it doesn't work definitely so Anybody wants to get into this sport at all is knowledge, read as much as you can, find a local falconry club that can help you out, they'll point you in the right direction. Um, definitely what I would say is a club that's leading by example is the Wessex region of the British Falconers Club who have recently started to sponsor people and actually give, get them their first Harris Hawks, mentor them. Uh, and teach them and be there as full-on knowledge for them the whole entire way. I don't know if it's something that a falconry club or that does in the US, but definitely that club uh, in the UK is definitely going above board to ensure any members are basically taking the right steps and doing things right um, and and making sure that they're getting the right bird that's sourced from a a great breeder uh, and everything's been done above board and and, and very very well and helping out and basically that bird's picked out for them they they are very happy with it they come and have a look at it before they actually pick it up they see it in the breeding chamber know where it's coming from and what i would like is for more clubs to actually follow suit and kind of do that and help out people it's something that i think we really 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 need to do 
Yeah, no, and and there's a lot of clubs or a lot of um, you know uh, state organizations in the U.S. that that do similar types of things. Uh, oftentimes, they'll appoint like a, an officer or something that is kind of like a, an apprentice liaison type of thing. And yeah, I mean, and that that's pretty much what they what they try and do is uh, you know that if anybody contacts the the club to try and learn more about falconry, then they basically say, sure, you know, you can, um, you know, where are you from? You know, if you're in this region, you can, uh, try and contact this person, this person, this person, try and link that up, um, try and let them know about, uh, picnics or, you know, meets or, or whatever that might be happening. And, and yeah, kind of facilitate the start of, of what's hopefully a good relationship and a good learning experience because, you know, it, it's a lot easier for people to find out that this might not be for them, but in a nice way. Yeah, that is it. And, you know, and if if you're a bunch of jerks to people wanting to come into the sport, then that's not going to help the cause no, either. definitely not. And, you know, I mean, there's it, people can find out well enough on their own if, if they're not really suited to it, you know, most of the time. So, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like that, that um, you know, there's uh, certain clubs that are on the right track with that yeah, here. definitely. And, and that's that's good to know. But well, awesome, man. Was there any other little um, I don't know bits of wisdom, or is there anything else you want to discuss before we we call us good? And uh, no, not really. I think yeah. I've said what I want to say. I, mean, <laughs> I just want to say thanks for having me on. As yeah. you know, I'm a long time listener of the podcast, and it's um, it's been a pleasure to be on it. Yeah, no, thanks for taking the time and. And um, you know, hanging out and having some beers this weekend. Yeah, and, it's been no, it's, it's been good. It's been a lot of fun. We'll go ahead real quick for anybody that might be swinging through Scotland on a on a vacation or uh, or through their travels or whatever. Where where's um, where can they find information about your, your uh, business? You'll find uh, information about Auckland and Bird Prey Centre. We have an uh, Instagram page, website, and a Facebook page. Everything's up there of what we do, what what we try to achieve, and what our flying demonstration times are and stuff so you'll you'll find us on any social media whatsoever we're on it yeah. so it's just a case of googling walk home and bird the prey center and everything you need to know will come up yeah and as far as if they want to you know look you up as far as your handle on instagram it's the scottish falconer right? yeah i am at the scottish falconer on yeah. um instagram um that's where i do post most stuff um either sit out in the center flying birds and getting birds ready for demonstration or out in the field hunting birds and doing stuff that's where most people can get a hold of me and it's where i'm more active i do have a facebook page but mostly everything's kind of coming from instagram onto the facebook page so that's where most people will find me on instagram perfect well uh, hopefully they've got this barbecue close to being ready that you've yeah, been hopefully. obsessing about for the past five <laughs> hours and and uh we can have another beer and then hang out some more so pleasure all right man thank you